This morning's study in Numbers 25, if it were made into a movie, it would receive a minimum rating of PG-13, possibly R, for language, violence, and mature themes. Yes, in your Bibles. I know some of you teens are kind of going, cool. All right. But before we get into it, let me just pray one more time. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will teach us and that your words would be my words and that uh, your heart would be among us. And that we would very clearly hear your grace, Father, and your character as well. That you would speak these things into us. And guide us through this study this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now before we get to Numbers 25, you've got to have a little background info to understand what's going on. We're still with Israel. They are now at the tail end of the wilderness wandering. They're about to go into the Promised Land. In fact, they've already had a couple of very successful uh, campaigns against other nations. They're doing pretty well. They're not in the Promised Land, but they're on the border. They're strengthening. They're becoming not just a group of slaves, but a group of, but a host for God. They're listening to the Lord. Moses is still in that place of leadership, and, and things are going forward. And the kings and nations around in Canaan's land at the time are beginning to get a little worried. Especially a certain king by the name of Balak. He has watched Israel in their campaigns. He's seen them take out Og and Sihon, a couple of other kings in their nations. He's worried. He's shaken in his boots. And Micah chapter 6 verse 5 says, My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him from Shittim to Gilgal. I told you there was language. So that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Some of you will get that during lunch today. In Numbers 22 through 24, we see a situation occur with the children of Israel. We are introduced to a sneaky seer. A problematic prophet. The most underhanded, I believe, and one of the most underhanded and enigmatic characters in all of Scripture. A man, if you just read the Old Testament version, it's kind of hard to understand what he's about, where he's coming from, what his deal is. His name is Balaam. Now what's interesting about Balaam is we have more information about him in the Bible than we have about Mary, the mother of Jesus, or about the apostles. More space is devoted to him and, and what he does. Why is that? Because of what I shared as we began, that he works hand in hand with Satan. That in the things that Balaam does against Israel, you can see very clearly the attack strategies of Satan and how he brings them about. And we understand these things not because of the Old Testament story, but because of the New Testament commentary on the Old Testament story. Again, if you were just to read Numbers 22 through 24, you might end up kind of thinking, wow, this Balaam, is, is, he's functioning for the Lord. He's listening to God. He's just speaking what the Lord tells him to speak. And in fact, Numbers 22 verse 38 says, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And he does. When he opens his mouth to speak, he speaks blessing, he speaks the words of God. In fact, he speaks prophecies of Jesus Christ. Numbers 24, some of the most fantastic prophecies that we see ahead of time about the coming of Messiah. But this King Balak of the Moabites, who again was shaking, he had heard about Israel, he calls on Balaam, he pays Balaam to put a curse on Israel. Balaam's not an Israelite prophet, but he is a prophet. He is well known in the area for being able to bless or curse nations. And so Balak calls on him and Balaam declares, I can only say what God tells me to say. And he, in fact, talks to the Lord. And I think, wow. 
what he says is exactly what I often pray. Let your words be my words, Lord. I will only speak what God puts into my mouth. But Balaam had a subtle scheme. Balaam had his own agenda, and the Holy Spirit has seen fit to reveal that agenda to us in the New Testament. A couple of passages, three actually, that talk about Balaam in the New Testament. You might want to make note of these. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. Peter writes, forsaking the right way, speaking by the way, he's talking about false prophets and apostasy in the last days. People will fall away. And he's speaking of these people and he says, they are those who are forsaking the right way. They've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. So the first attack scheme here that you need to know is that the way of Balaam is covetousness. It's covetousness. His scheme, his idea, it's about financing himself. It's covetousness, and that is the way of Balaam. Now, Jude tells us there's another aspect of Balaam's character. Jude, verse 11 says, For pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam. Well, what's that? Well, the way of Balaam is covetousness. The error of Balaam is confusion. Confusion. Now listen. This is one of the most powerful strategies that Satan will use against you. Confusion. I don't know what to do. I've got all this information coming in. There's this, there's that, there's the other. There are all kinds of things I could choose. Or I don't know what to do. And when you're feeling that way, when you're thinking that way, you need to understand that is not of the Lord. Our God is not a God of confusion. So if you're confused, you're under attack. It is not of the Lord. The error of Balaam is confusion. The way of Balaam is covetousness. But there's one more commentary on Balaam's actions in his heart that is the most telling. And it plays right into our study this morning in Numbers 25. But the reality is, though Balaam could not curse Israel, he could compromise them. What you read, and it's interesting, in Numbers 22 through 24, is four different times Balaam stands up and tries to curse Israel. And he opens his mouth to curse, and blessing comes out. He can't do it. He attempts to curse. And King Balak's getting more angry every time. Look, I paid you to curse these people. And he'd stand up on a high mountain, overlooking the people of Israel, and say, blessing, 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 blessing. He couldn't do it. And so because he couldn't curse Israel, we come to understand through the book of Revelation a stunning insight. He compromised them. He couldn't help the Moabites win a military victory, so he gave them intel to give them a moral victory. He worked a different way. And this is what Satan does when covetous doesn't work. When confusion doesn't work, he goes for the most subtle attack of all. And it's the one that undermines, I believe, the church today more than anything else. And it's compromise. Compromise. Moral compromise. Little compromises here and there. Just little steps. Just slightly outside of the will of God. One foot in, one foot out. Compromise. Listen to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is speaking to one of the seven churches. He says, I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. The way of Balaam is covetousness. You know, the error of Balaam is confusion. But the teaching of Balaam, listen to what he says. It's those who keep teaching Balak, or he, how he kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, we don't see that in the Old Testament story. 
We don't realize that's what's going on. That was a behind-the-scenes thing that isn't given to us until we get all the way to the book of Revelation and discover Balaam, behind the scenes, was teaching Balak how to put a stumbling block in front of the children of Israel. You can't win this battle. I can't curse them for you. But you can compromise them. How? The book of Revelation goes on. To put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. The way, gang, the teaching, I'm sorry, the teaching of Balaam is compromise the fine art of sensual seduction. And that's the background for our story this morning. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. What's going on here? Compromise. Balak and the Moabites could not win a military victory, but they won a moral victory because instead of fighting them overtly, they began to fight them covertly. They began to send their women in front of the eyes of the men of Israel. They began to make their, their pagan festivals and celebrations big parties and inviting the Israelites, hey, come on and drink with us, party with us, play with us. We're having a great time over here. You're our new neighbors. Come on and join us. Hey, Israel, check out our daughters. <laughs> hey, Israel, come to our parties. Compromise. Hang with us. We're going to be neighbors in the promised land. Let's get along. And Baal becomes a centerpiece for Israel. And they begin to compromise. Mount Peor, by the way, is where Baal was worshipped in a perverse pagan practice that involves sexual immorality. That was all part of Baal worship. By the way, Baal is the god of power. You want power. There's a way to get power. It's through immorality. It's not by playing by the rules. And so they would go out and involve themselves in these pagan parties. And all Israel was invited into it. Balaam couldn't curse Israel. But Balaam taught Balak and Moab how to cause Israel to bring the curse on themselves. And that's where we are. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses, verse 5, said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Listen, gang, understand this. There's something that has not changed in the heart of God across all of history. He cannot stand sin and immorality. That has not changed in the character and the nature of our Father. He will not abide sin. He will not tolerate sin. He will not compromise morally. And we need to know that. Sometimes we look around in the world and we say, Oh, the lightning isn't falling, so God must be lightening up. You know, what was a problem 30 years ago? Not so much today. I've actually heard it said in, in, in making the case for homosexuality in the church and open up acceptance that, hey, 30 years ago the church didn't accept divorce and we don't have a problem with it today. So maybe today, maybe 30 years from now, we'll be with homosexuality like we are with divorce. It's not that big a deal. Compromise. Compromise. Do not mistake 
God's patience, His love, and His grace in this current age of grace for moral compromise, God still cannot tolerate sin. It has not changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still perfectly holy, and He still demands that His people approach Him as such, as holy. Now the situation intensifies. Look at verse 6. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. What's happening? It says he brought to his relatives. That's a bad translation. He brought her into his tent. He brought her into his household. In the sight of Moses and everyone else, here comes this Israelite man dragging along a Midianite woman and they go right into the tent in front of everybody so that he might have his way with her. I told you it was PG-13. This is as brazen as it gets in the presence of all the people of Israel, even Moses himself. This guy has the audacity to say, hey, whatever. You you just took out all of our leaders and, and all that. But I have a right to live my life. I have a right to live the way I want to live. And I happen to dig this chick and I'm bringing her home with me. You got a problem with that? Tough. Brazen attitude. Verse 7. <laughs> and this is awesome. Just last night we were watching the Count of Monte Cristo with all the sword fighting and everything. I love this. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. Dang, they were in the middle of having sex. And he came in with a spear and stabbed it through both of them. This is intense. You see this on the screen and you go, Ooh, that's a little, that's a little awesome. It's amazing. What is the deal with Phineas? And you're thinking, okay, now things are just totally going out of control. Things are bizarre. We have a two-for-one shish kebab here. Sin on a stick. <laughs> Now you might be thinking, you read this, you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, two wrongs don't make a right. They may have been sinning, yes. They may have been caught in in adulterous, immoral behavior, yes. But but does that make it right for Phineas to grab a spear and commit murder and to kill them? That can't be right. God's not going to stand for this, is he? Read on. It says so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. Remember that. There were people dying right and left when Phineas committed this action. Verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them. So that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of shalom. Peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him. A covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. This is absolutely stunning. Phineas comes along with a spear, stabs it through them, puts them, as it were, out of their rabid misery, and Phineas gets blessed for it. God says this is a good thing. 
Phineas is acting under my passion. He's functioning the way I want people to function. Why? Because Phineas was not afraid to deal with sin in the congregation. He dealt with it effectively, immediately. And you know what? Phineas didn't stop to think about it. Look at the wording. He grabbed the spear. He took the spear and went after them. They walked by. They go into the tent. Phineas says, I've had enough. Grabs the spear, goes in after them, and takes them out. And he is right in line with the will of the Father. Psalm 106 verse 30 says, Then Phineas stood up and interposed. It's a nice way of saying he stabbed them through. So that the plague was stayed. And it was reckoned to him for righteousness to all generations forever. The plague is stayed. The people are saved. And Phineas and all of his descendants after him will be blessed for this action. Because he would not tolerate sin in the congregation Regardless of the consequences, Phineas might say, I will stand for the Lord. And he's given a covenant of peace. And his actions are holy and just and right on before the Father. Read on, verse 14. Now the name of the slain man of Israel, who was slain with the Midianite woman, was Zimri. The son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. Remember that, a leader of the father's household. And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Bill. Sorry, Zer. Zer, father. Who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Something to understand. We are given the names of both of these two. Why? Because names are important in the Bible. Zimri means remember me. Remember me. But apparently Zimri did not remember the Lord. But Zimri wasn't just any old Israelite. He wasn't just a common person among Israel. He was a prince among the people of Simeon. That's important. He was upper crust. He was in leadership. He was a well-known guy when he did this. And then we see Cosby, whose name means, and it's just perfect, deception. Deception. She was the daughter of a prince of Midian. So we have a daughter of a prince. We have a prince among the Israelites. They come together. They were upper crust, crust, high class, and certainly well known among the people. But that didn't make Phineas flinch. It didn't matter who they were or what their standing was. They were in the wrong. Period. And Phineas acted Verse 16 goes on, And the Lord said to Moses, Be hostile to the Midianites and strike them. For they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Now listen. This story is gory, but it's good. It's gory, but it's good. It's violent, but it is valuable. It's not nice to hear, but it's necessary to heed. And I just want to give you two more things to consider this morning. And the first one is this. I want you to understand the point of the spear. The point of the spear. Again, if you go back three chapters previous, Numbers 22 through 24, there is a fantastic, a wonderful picture of grace. A picture of grace. If you go back, the story goes that before Balaam comes among the people, something else bad happened. The people began to sin and complain, and God sent a plague among them. You remember this? The plague was killing all the people. It was snakes. Snakes biting and bringing about death among the people. 
And so the Lord tells Moses, I want you to set up a brazen serpent on a staff. And I want the people to look at that brazen serpent on the staff, that, that bronze serpent, and when they look in faith at that, I will heal them. And that's exactly what happened. People began looking up to that bronze serpent and being healed. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, that is the picture of the cross. The one lifted up in the wilderness that if you will look to it, you will be saved. You will be healed. And that's what happens to us, name when we come to Jesus at the cross. The cross removes for us the curse. But there's more to it. Back before that, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 2, and you Bible students may recall this. If you haven't heard this, I've got to share it with you. It says in verse 2 of Numbers 24, that Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. Spirit of God, our Holy Father, came upon Balaam, and he began to prophesy blessing. Now, why is that significant? Because from the place that Balaam looked down on the people, what he would have seen is, Bible students, what? What would he have seen in the people camped out around the tabernacle? They would have seen the cross. Because in the way, and you can read this in Numbers 1 and 2, in the numbering of the people, as they were camping out in their tribes, perpendicular to the tabernacle, the size is a perfect cross. That's how they camped, in the shape of a cross. And that's what Balaam saw. And when Balaam looked at the cross, he could not curse the people. And that's the way it is for us. When the cross is between us, when we function under the shadow of the cross, we cannot be cursed. We can only receive blessing from the Father. And these three chapters prior to chapter 25, we see the people blessed. They cannot be cursed. They are people in the cross. Like you and I, Paul says, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So they couldn't be cursed. They're in the shape of the cross. And we are people of the cross who cannot be cursed. But look at this. Don't miss this. In Numbers 25, we see this portrait of grace even continued pour out. We we see some hints and pictures of Jesus in protection against a curse. We see the leaders of the people as they begin to go out after Moab were executed before Israel in broad daylight just as our leader, Jesus Christ, was executed for us in our place. In broad daylight, before the people of Israel. And just as the spear of Phineas went through the middle of this man and woman in the act of their sin, so the spear of the Roman soldier went through Jesus, listen to me, in the act of sin. Jesus in the act of sin? The Bible tells us that He became sin on that cross. That He was, as He hung on the cross, bearing, holding, containing all of our sin. And when the Spirit went through Him, He was in the middle of our sin, which has a dramatic message for us. Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, if you came this morning and thought you're going to give church a try and maybe you're going to try and clean up your life and get it right before God, listen, Jesus died for you in the midst of your sin, not in your cleaned up, perfect, wonderful, restored state. That's what He gives to you, not what you give to Him. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 tells us even when we were dead in our transgressions, Jesus made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. When did He do it? When we were dead. 
The Spirit went through Jesus when He was dead. Jesus on the cross, that picture again of the brazen serpent in the wilderness. By the way, you might have wondered, why? Why did God choose a serpent, which is the picture of sin in the Bible, to put up on that pole and represent Jesus Christ? You know the answer. Because Jesus is the picture of sin in the Bible on the cross. And under the cross we have that protection. The blood of Christ buys your protection against the curse of sin, against the curse of Satan. And all of this speaks of the grace of God that came through the sacrifice of Jesus. When we're washed in the blood, gang, it's a gory story, but it's a good one. It's violent, but it's valuable. It's not nice to hear, but it's necessary to heed. But listen, don't miss this. This is the point of the Spirit. In Christ we're blessed. We're saved. We're washed. We're clean. But it is still possible to curse ourselves. For all of the blessing and the protection that Israel had under the Lord... And the fact that Balaam could not curse them, guess what? They ended up cursing themselves. And we can do the same. We can do the same. It's interesting if you will look back at chapter 25. The word anger is used for the Lord. The word anger there literally means red nose. But it speaks of two things. It doesn't just mean that God was angry and his face was red. It means it's a picture of someone's nose being red because they're weeping. God felt that. That pain. The sin of the people of Israel stung the eyes and reddened the nose of the Father. And the sin undermined the very blessing that God wanted to give the people of Israel. And Phineas alone in chapter 25 receives the blessing. Because he alone is the one who is not willing to compromise. He's uncompromising, he's intolerant of sin in the congregation. And gang, the world would call us Christians intolerant. Of course I'm intolerant. Because like Phineas, we look around and we understand something. That sin is killing the congregation. That sin is taking the lives of people we love. Absolutely I'm intolerant of sin. You bet I don't want to see sin in the world. Or even in my own life. Why? Because it kills. It's taking people out right and left. We should be absolutely livid towards sin. Not compromising toward it. Saying, you know, we live in this world. Let's just be a part of it. The world would call us Christians uncompromising. Absolutely. Because we are not called. We are not called. Please hear me. We are not called to a spirit of compromise. We are called to a different spirit. Hebrews 10.39 We're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove... What the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Gang, the Lord freely gives blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He wants us to live lives that are blessed. So why don't we? Why don't we? Why is it when I asked this morning if you feel under attack that so many stood up? Why is it that we continue to feel cursed in our lives when the Lord wants to give us blessing? I'll tell you why. It's because we get clogged up. We get clogged up. The blessings get blocked. Things get jammed up. 
physically speaking, it's the exact thing that causes heart failure. I actually went online because I wanted to understand a heart attack a little bit better. And I went online to this, this place where I could see and showed a heart and, and described exactly how heart attacks happen. You may know this, but fatty deposits primarily made up of cholesterol form into plaque and line the arteries going into the heart. And the more they form, the more they get clogged, and the less the blood can get to the heart where it needs to get. And gang, the more I compromise in my life, the more sin I allow in my life and just say, hey, it's okay, the more I get clogged up and the blood can't get to my heart. It's not that God doesn't want to bless me. It's that I am too busy cursing myself. I'm too busy compromising in this world. Even after God graces me with salvation, gang, He continues to call us to holiness. Yes, we're saved. But saved people living lives of curse, that's not what God wants for us. What He wants, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, is that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. What Phineas did, gang, in response to the carnal buildup of Israel was emergency double bypass surgery. That's what he did. He sent the spear through. It was emergency surgery. It was painful and it was violent. It was an extreme action, but it was about saving lives because after he did it, guess what? The plague on Israel was checked. 24,000 Israelites died. More would have died had Phineas not acted. Phineas was about the love of God, the passion of God. He was about the things God was about. And Phineas loved the people of Israel. He loved them too much to stand around and let them die in their sin. And so he acted with the point of the spear. And God blessed him greatly. That's the point of the spear. What about the end of the spear? The end of the spear. I was asked last week where I stood on church discipline. It's stunning to me how many adulterous situations are going on in churches and nobody does anything about it. Nobody says anything about it. Nobody confronts it. Nobody deals with it. It's amazing to me how many of us in our lives, and I'm including myself in this, are aware of sin in our families, sin among our children, sin with a brother or a sister, and we do nothing. It's compromise. There's an adulterous situation currently going on in a local church body and the pastor and leaders are doing nothing. And so the question was brought to me, what would you do? How would you handle this? Let me answer that for you this morning. At the Bridge Christian Fellowship, we believe in and will employ church discipline. Let me explain exactly what that means. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians. Now stick with me on this because I know some of you have been affected by church discipline in a negative way I know things have been handled probably very poorly for you in, in your life but stick with me and let's see what the Bible says about this about acting with the spirit of Phineas 1 Corinthians chapter 5 <coughs> Verse 1, 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now before I read on, understand that there are people who take this passage and that verse and say, okay, it's only in extreme, extreme, extreme cases that we should employ church discipline, and I disagree. I disagree. Yes, this is an extreme case. A guy has his father's wife and is sleeping with her, and that's an adultery of a pretty intense kind. Again, adultery is adultery. And so this applies. Read on verse 2. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. By the way, Phineas, Aaron, Moses were sitting at the entrance of the tabernacle, and the Bible tells us they were weeping over what was happening in Israel. They were mourning over the sin. They were torn up by it. Paul says you become arrogant, you have not mourned, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan, listen, for the destruction of his flesh. Why, Paul? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Down in verse 13. Paul says, those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This adulterous, immoral situation is going on in the body. It's known in the body of Corinth. Even Paul knows about it. And he says, here's how you deal with it. Church discipline, you remove him. You tell him, I'm sorry, you're not welcome here in this behavior. You're not welcome here living this kind of a lifestyle. We will not accept that in this place. And gang, I believe in church discipline. We haven't had to employ it. I haven't had to go to anybody at the bridge thus far and say, you can't come here if you're going to live that way. But I believe in it. And I will do it. Even to the point of removing someone from the body. Why? With the hope, gang. Listen, with the hope that it will lead to restoration. This is different than how the world deals with things. The world looks at a bad and moral situation and says, Oh, we just, we've just got to be loving and accepting. we just got to kind of love them through it. And there's no accountability. And there's no judgment. And there's no reason why the person living in that state of sin needs to stop. Why should I? My friends are accepting me as I am. Isn't it great? Not in the church. Not in the body. Skip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6. Second Corinthians chapter 2 verse 6. Paul is now responding, and I believe to the same exact situation that he sent the first letter about, and he says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So apparently Corinth followed his advice and kicked the man out. Verse 7, So that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Okay, Paul says, it's enough. You kicked him out. You drove him away. He is sorrowful about it. He's torn up about it. Now restore him. Now bring him back. See, the problem with church discipline is some churches refuse to act at all. 
Other churches act, cut the person off, and will never let them back in the door, never receive them, never restore them, never offer the forgiveness that we all have in Jesus Christ. And it's both. It's discipline and it's forgiveness. It's discipline and it's restoration. But in the case of brazen in your face, what are you going to do about it? sin? I believe that the Lord would have us, listen, act like Phineas and protect the body. Protect the body. The spear gang of Phineas is serious business. And it's key to the availability, listen to this, of the power of the Holy Spirit among us. Because what we do when we just blatantly allow anything to go on, any moral act that comes up, we just kind of turn the other way and ignore it and figure out between them and God. Guess what we lose? We lose the power of the Holy Spirit here. God will not function in a place where sin is allowed to run its course and do what it's going to do. Last passage, turn over to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6. While you're turning there, Luke chapter 6, around verse 17. I'm sharing this all with you, not because a situation like that is going on in this body. It's not. At least not that I'm aware of. (laughs) But I'm sharing it with you because I want you to know ahead of time exactly what the Bible has to say about it. And what the Bible has to say, gang, is where we stand. Okay? Luke chapter 6 and verse 17. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. This is what happened when Jesus was in the midst of people Verse 19, watch this. All the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. That's awesome. That's just awesome. You might recall the story of the woman who who had the bleeding for 12 years and all she wanted was just to touch Jesus. She did. She got up and touched the hem of his robe and in so doing, Jesus stopped and said, wait a minute, I felt power go out from me. That's intense. Jesus was full of power. But let me share something that's just mind-blowing with you. The word translated power here in the King James Version is also rightly translated virtue. Virtue. The word for power is also the word for virtue. It's the word for purity. Jesus was so virtuous and pure that power literally flowed out of him. It was in his perfection as God in the flesh. It was in his purity that the power for healing was available and effective. And I submit to you that where there is sin, there is not power for healing. But where there is not sin, as in the case of the person of Jesus Christ, there was no sin in him before the cross. And as he functioned in that purity and in that virtue, the power was available to heal. Now listen to this. It's incredible. Because this word attached to Jesus' pure power in Luke 16, 19 is used again. It may be familiar to some of you Bible students. It is the word dunamis. Dunamis. What does that mean? It means power. 
And it's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. The power that flowed out of Jesus for healing and restoration. That power, that purity, that virtue. Guess what? It's yours in the Holy Spirit. If we understood that, the healings would not cease. If we could live those lives of purity like Jesus, you could not stop the flow of power of the Holy Spirit in this place. This virtuous power that existed in Jesus Christ is a blessing afforded at the cross and it's available to you and to me. And we have a responsibility in our personal lives and in our corporate lives as a church fellowship and that is to clean out the carnal plaque that clogs up the heart because we've got to have the open flowing vessels for the blood of Christ to do what it needs to do among us. Now hear me clearly on this. I am not talking about your salvation. I'm not talking about acts of righteousness and good works that buy you your salvation. You have it in Christ. But you want to live a life that is not cursed. You want to live a life of blessing. Then grab hold of the spear of Phineas and let it fly. Let's start to use that very spear. Take the spear of Phineas, Phineas, of Phineas against sin. Use the spear of Phineas against sin. Drive it through some of you. Listen, drive it through the liquor cabinet at home. What are you doing with that? Run it through your TV screen. Wield it violently against the internet. Parents, especially in your homes, would you pay attention to what your kids are doing? You realize that pornography covers about 85% of the internet today? Some of you dads need to, by the way, repent of internet pornography before your sons so that they can understand how hideous and dangerous and compromising it is. Some of you moms need your daughters to hear you repenting of the trashy magazines that lie around the house that you're just kind of accustomed to. Have you looked at Redbook lately? Have you? Redbook. What's a nice magazine? Redbook. It's been around for ages, right? It's a great place to go if you want a human view on how to, you know, have a better sex life with your lover. Unbelievable. Wield the spear. Some of you husbands need your wives to watch you stand up and take the spear of Phineas and lead in your families. Some of you teenagers need to see the reality of God in your lives at school in such a way that your friends see something different among you. The spear of Phineas. God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Grow up in your salvation. But I ask the question, are we at the end of the spear? Are we so clogged up by compromise that we can't come back? Are we just going to have to deal with the curses in this world because the blessings can't get through our clogged arteries and hearts because we're afraid to wield the Spirit of God? Are we what Josh McDowell would call the last Christian generation? I invite you as we consider these things. I'm going to have Barb and Danny come on up. I invite you to ask yourself, what is it in my life that I need to take the spear to? What is it that I am doing 
how am I behaving? How am I living in such a way that the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, compromise is making its way throughout my home and my family and my environment? We're not called to compromise. To love the people of God, yes, and to love the things of the Lord. And to serve Him with all our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength for the days are short, gang. And Jesus is coming back. And I preach this so fervently this morning because I want to see healing here. And I want to see the people of God lifted up and living for God in the way that He wants us to live, not in the way that we're compromising. And my friends, I've got compromise right and left in my life. This has been, you know, being down for a couple weeks with this flu, whatever it is. I've been looking at a lot of things in my life and wondering, is it time to make some serious changes? Is it time to bring the spear? I bring this to you out of love and and recognizing that God has not called us to shrink back. He's called us to boldness and not to live like this world. Danny's going to sing here in a moment and I would invite you if you need to repent of some things in your life that may be bringing the curse that may be clogging up God's blessing and His desire to give you virtue and power and I invite you to come forward can you have our elders just keep their eyes open and if someone comes up come and sit down and pray with them our elders wives if, if a lady comes up and sits down please keep your eyes open and come up and pray with them but let's take a few moments and be real and be honest with the Lord about our compromise and seek his power and his strength to overcome let's bow our heads for a moment Father in heaven God you love your people you love us so much and it's only just at this point in my life when I'm beginning to realize that your absolute hatred for sin is because of your unbelievable love for us Father we need to love that way we need Lord to love our friends and our family in such a way that we will not tolerate the sin that destroys them the sin that entangles and hurts and curses we need to recognize Lord that the sin in our own lives makes the sin in the lives of those around us all the more easy so I pray Lord this morning that you will begin with us that you will take the spear to sin in my life that you will convict me of my sin Father I personally repent I am sorry for the things I've done to hurt you I'm sorry for the behavior and for the actions of compromise in my life forgive me Father I thank you for your salvation and I pray that you'll make me bold to live for you Jesus in these few moments I pray that you'll bring us to repentance all who need to repent 
all who need to confess. Bring us to you, Father. Start the change today in Jesus' name.